With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. MySpace used to be the most popular website in America. It launched in 2003 and peaked in 2008 with over 100 million users. At the height of its popularity, a quarter of a million users were signing up for new accounts every day. Most of the people on the site were young, in their teens and 20s. It was at the center of their social lives. I'm 12, turning 13. Woo. I'm currently 13. I'm turning 14 on September 26th. I'll be 15 October 5th. I'm 15. <sighs> anyway, y'all need to comment on my pictures that I just put on that ain't cute now. I don't take cute pictures often. Some of you all want to get to know me, leave me friend requests because I approve all of them. My name is Joanne McNeil. I'm a writer who has covered internet culture since the early days of social media. I have watched social networks rise and fall. And of all these companies, MySpace has always struck me as the most fascinating. And my fascination is shared with a lot of people, including many who were too young to even have been on it. I wrote a book called Lurking, a history of social media since the beginning of the World Wide Web. And in my research, I kept coming across young people talking about MySpace like a cool scene that they wish they could have been part of, like CBGB or Studio 54. Part of what draws me to MySpace is the era. MySpace launched in the early aughts when suddenly the internet was very fast. People transitioned to broadband connections after slow dial-up ISPs. Another part of it is the culture. With this increased bandwidth and speed, you could share pictures and music files much more easily than before. Users did this on MySpace. When MySpace launched, social media was an unknown quantity. People had no idea how to make money off of social networks or even if they could make money off of it. And the consequences of social media had yet to be seen. 
issues like surveillance and harassment became more complex as users transitioned from a largely text-based internet experience to image-based social media, things shifted with MySpace, including some positive new directions. Because MySpace offered internet users something new, the possibilities of how to act on it felt endless. MySpace offered opportunities for people to express their creativity and meet people in ways that felt thrilling and maybe a little bit scary at the time. Someone could be posting from their parents' house in the suburbs one minute and become a superstar musician the next. Oh yeah, that's another defining feature of MySpace. The grown-ups weren't there. The social network often felt like a house party thrown when someone's parents went out of town. For better or worse. Teenagers say MySpace is a great way to express yourself. Police, however, call MySpace a predator's buffet. And now for our next story. For some people, it's cigarettes. For others, gambling. But for millions of teens, their newest addiction is MySpace. June 6th, 2006, or 666, came and went without satanic groups waging war against Christians. But... The incident left school officials wondering how to deal with problems arising from conversations on the popular website, myspace.com. But MySpace could also be a lifeline. People use MySpace in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina to keep in touch with friends and family members after they evacuated Louisiana. Soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan use the social network to stay connected with people back home. MySpace was all of these things because MySpace wasn't just Tom Anderson and Krista Wolf, the co-founders of the social network, or Rupert Murdoch, who acquired it, or even Tila Tequila or any of its other famous users who might now be called influencers. It was a place where millions of people could connect to one another. I think each platform becomes kind of synonymous with a time and culture. So, you know, there's like the Vine era or like we're in the TikTok era now or like Instagram. And I think MySpace was kind of like this thing that felt very relevant at least in certain worlds in the mid 2000s but it but it lost that relevance pretty quickly because it couldn't ultimately like scale up to be mainstream like Facebook That's Taylor Lorenz, Washington Post tech reporter and author of Extremely Online, a forthcoming book on influencers. After I spoke with Taylor, she sent a tweet out to her followers asking who had memories of MySpace and if they would share. These responses give you a glimpse of people's feelings and memories about the social network. I can remember being just out of college, my first job, and just agonizing over who to put in my top eight. College friends, people from home, new work friends. It's just complete nonsense. I was the perfect age when MySpace came around in high school. It was the first time we realized there were kids just like us in other towns. It opened up my whole... So I got sent a bunch of anonymous messages over MySpace as a teen that were like nice and affirming and they felt kind of magical and I would respond to them using my profile page. The anonymous messenger later revealed that they were my psychiatrist and I think I was 15. 
With 100 million users, there are 100 million stories you could tell. So what was MySpace? What drew people to it? Why aren't people using it anymore? And why did people who weren't even born when MySpace launched feel like they missed out on something special? We'll explore all that in this series. And we will take you back to that moment, which was incredibly influential and messy, and it remains largely underexplored. You have to keep in mind, everyone was making up the rules on the fly. This is true of the users, and it was also true of what was happening inside the company itself. Everyone was figuring out MySpace in real time. What happened in the MySpace era would have sweeping implications for all the platforms to follow. But before we get into the experiences that users had, from musicians to soldiers stationed abroad, let's start at the very beginning. MySpace does not have your typical Silicon Valley origin story. Its founders weren't typical startup guys. And the success of MySpace? Back then, it seemed just as unlikely. If you were on MySpace, I bet I can guess the name of one of your friends. Tom Anderson. That Tom. MySpace Tom. Tom was everyone's friend. If you sign up for a MySpace account, Tom would appear on your friends list automatically. You couldn't see people unless you had a friend. Right. And, and Friendster was first, and we were trying to compete. So when people signed up, they wouldn't see anything. That's boring. So mm-hmm. I put myself as this person that could connect everyone else so you'd see people right when you signed up. That was the idea. And it worked because Tom looked friendly in his profile picture. He looked like a normal indie rock guy from L.A. He even shaved a few years off his age to make him seem like part of the young crowd on the site. I mean, Tom is like such an interesting guy because he he does seem like he was sort of the creative spark behind MySpace. He certainly was the emotional heart of it. And he was a very private person, but also very experimental. That's Julia Angwin. She's an investigative journalist and the founder of The Markup. The company first came on her radar after News Corp acquired it in 2005. MySpace wasn't the first social network. And we'll get into some earlier examples like Friendster and Black Planet in our next episode, but it quickly surpassed these competitors. So back in 2000s, I was a beat reporter at the Wall Street Journal, and my beat was News Corp. I was supposed to just cover Rupert Murdoch's company. And that's how beats were at the journal. You just really focused on a big company like News Corp would have one dedicated reporter. And so I actually hadn't really heard of MySpace until News Corp bought it. And I remember I had to write up the acquisition. It was announced late in the day and I was scrambling and I was shocked at how popular it was. I was like, what is this thing? 
Later, she wrote a book about the company at the fallout of this acquisition, Stealing MySpace, which was published in 2009. The story of MySpace was about a bunch of people who were really not that good at what they did, (laughs) but were successful. These guys were just really good marketers. They were really interested in MySpace as a way to get to meet with bands and go and meet cool girls and go to clubs. And so it was definitely a party atmosphere. The characters behind MySpace were intriguing to Julia. She grew up in Silicon Valley, hearing about these coding geniuses and entrepreneurial legends like Steve and Waz. The MySpace founders were very different. They were not the crowd I was used to in tech, which was a bunch of engineers who went to Stanford and had a brilliant idea and then started, you know, a little startup on Sand Hill Road, right? They were Los Angeles party dudes. Tom Anderson had founded the company with Krista Wolf inside a Los Angeles-based startup called E-Universe. Before MySpace, Tom had worked for Chris as a copywriter and product tester at another startup. Tom was a musician. He went to film school and dabbled in the hacker community as a teenager. You could definitely say Tom was entrepreneurial. He had some experience running a porn website, too. Krista Wolf, who had worked in sales and marketing, was the one who came up with the name. Like seemingly everything about MySpace, it got its name haphazardly. MySpace. It was just sort of on a fluke. It seemed like a good deal. I think it was $5,000. Good Some name. company that was going bankrupt was selling it, <clears throat> decided to buy it. Came up with the idea for MySpace and we're just scratching our heads for what a good name could be. And we came up with all these crazy names that were you know, really ridiculous, like Kamingle. And, and then it was just sort of this moment. Oh, yeah, we bought the URL MySpace a year ago. Let's use that. Chris had bought the domain name from a former client, an online storage startup that went bust, and had been sitting on it. To understand how it all happened, why Chris and Tom would make a play for social media in the first place, and how they went on to build America's most popular website in the aughts, it helps to know some of the backstory on eUniverse, the company where MySpace was founded. MySpace was just one of many little projects at this company called eUniverse, which was an early kind of crappy e-commerce company <laughs> that did all sorts of garbage, right? They sold vitamins that were definitely sketchy. And they did like these pop-up ads that were really gross. And like they were in all of these spaces that were kind of like the underbelly of the internet. Back then, people called this spyware or adware. It was a real nuisance. E-Universe had products they offered as free downloads, like animation that would make your cursor look like an American flag. But if you downloaded one of their animations, it might trigger pop-up ads, little websites that could follow a user around as they surfed the web. In 2002, eUniverse, what would become the MySpace parent company, 
was holding on as one of the few survivors of the dot-com crash. It's worth remembering, like, this was after the dot-com boom and bust. So there had been this huge buildup where everyone was like, oh my God, the internet's going to be so amazing. And all this money raced in in the early 2000s, and then it just blew up in 2001 and collapsed. And basically from 2002 to 2008 or so, people talk about it as like the internet winter, where there was not really a lot of investment because people were like, uh, we got burned on all these companies like pets.com that really didn't turn out. And so there wasn't a lot of investors. And so the people who survived were people who came up with these kind of scrappy underbelly kind of businesses. And eUniverse was, was one of those. E-Universe, which would later be renamed Intermix, was not without its critics. In 2005, the company was sued for its practices distributing spyware to unsuspecting users. Elliot Spitzer was attorney general in New York, and he was pretty aggressive in setting up an internet prosecution Bureau. At the time, there weren't a lot of attorney generals who were internet savvy or who had started bringing cases against internet companies because the internet scene was still very nascent, right? And wasn't necessarily seen as interesting targets. Some of the first ones he brought were against the predecessor companies of Intermix and E-Universe. This was the year before Elliot Spitzer was elected governor of New York. And three years before his big scandal as governor of New York. Very, very briefly, Spitzer had a rendezvous with a sex worker named Ashley Dupre. After the scandal broke, he resigned as governor in 2008. Ashley Dupre, by the way, had a pretty active MySpace page, including music tracks, and at the time, gossip columnists were pouring over Ashley's page. But... Let's rewind back to Elliot Spitzer, the then New York attorney general, who was cracking down on spyware. Spitzer was doing important work. He really helped start this movement to raise concerns about the safety of MySpace's platform. Intermix settled the lawsuit and agreed to $7.5 million in penalties over three years and to stop distributing adware programs. The case was unusual because the way people talked about user privacy back then was different. The advocates at that time in the privacy space were mostly focused on government surveillance. So there was a lot of focus on the National Security Agency and police surveillance, but the privacy community wasn't really focused on corporate surveillance because there really wasn't that much of it at that point. Her investigation into MySpace as a Wall Street Journal reporter was a turning point in Julia Anglin's own career. MySpace was when I first learned about the issue that we call privacy, that I like to call data exploitation. It occurred to me that basically what they were selling was they were giving you, their users, free software. Previously, if you wanted to set up a website for yourself, you would go buy software at a store. Back then, it still cost like $60 to buy some software and you'd get a box, it'd be shrink-wrapped, you'd take the CD home, you'd load it up, and then you could 
build something, you could build a web page. But they were basically giving users that for free and the way the users were paying them was with all this information. That exchange, data and information from users for a free online service from a company is a more commonly recognized trade these days. In retrospect, I would say that the legacy of MySpace is actually the pioneering of this business model of monetizing user data. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While at E-Universe, Tom and Chris had at their disposal the company's database of over 30 million email addresses. They had all these email addresses to announce this new social network from their windowless office near LAX. And this social network, MySpace, was the perfect project for this internet marketing company because it meant that the emails of everyone who signed up with a new account could be added to the database. Tom became the president of MySpace, and Chris became its CEO. Tom Anderson, as everyone's friend, had at one point over 100 million online friends. But Krista Wolf kept a steady 177 friends. Still, neither of them owned this company. Their lack of independence presented a problem. MySpace was a subsidiary of this parent company, Intermix. And MySpace, they had some autonomy because they ran the site themselves. So the founders of it, you know, did have that feeling that they were their own company. But 
Intermix had basically the option to buy MySpace as part of the legal contract. In 2005, when MySpace was seeing enormous traffic, 16 million visitors a month, the biggest social network in the world was sold to News Corp. It was the head of Intermix who negotiated the deal. Essentially, they were able to exercise that contract, that ability to buy out MySpace's shares without the knowledge or consent of the founders of MySpace. And so they basically did this secret deal behind the backs of the founders with Rupert Murdoch to sell MySpace from out from underneath the founders. I mean, tragically, like as a reporter who covers technology and has covered Silicon Valley for a long time, these kinds of things happen, I mean, more frequently than you would think because, you know, founders setting up their companies, you know, just there's a lot of people who prey on their inexperience and add clauses. And that's a classic thing that investors do is put in, you know, legal language to give themselves options. Because the fact is the investors in Intermix wanted to cash out. They didn't want to wait for, you know, MySpace was like, oh, we want to be like the vibe of MTV is our vibe and like all this vibe stuff. But the investors just want their money and they want the most money. And so they set up the terms so that they had the ability to to execute when they wanted to. Chris and Tom were each paid $30 million. They left the company in 2009. News Corp brought in a new CEO and its own people and really took over the company. The way Richard Rosenblatt, CEO of Intermix, pitched the company to Rupert Murdoch is instructive in how it captures what people thought of social media in 2005. Rosenblatt sold MySpace as a self-sustaining entertainment business. Julia has a great quote from their exchange in her book. Yeah, I want to read this quote because it's actually such a great quote that he said to Rupert Murdoch. Mr. Murdoch, MySpace is the perfect media company. Unlike traditional media companies, MySpace generates free content through its users. It generates free traffic by its users inviting their friends. And all you have to do is sell the ads. It was user-generated content. Old media meaning before 2004, you had to pay to produce a film or fund the recording of an album. But in the eyes of investors, social media generated itself because there were users hanging out on the platform. You didn't need money to produce a film or record an album. The content is populated on its own just by being active there. People would watch and listen and get glued to what happened on the website, at least in theory. And in theory, when people were actually hanging out on MySpace. It seems like Rupert Murdoch wanted to just find a way into the internet, right? He was like, I've got all these things. I've got satellite TV. I've got cable TV. I've got newspapers. But the future is going to be the internet. And so I want a foothold there. And he was not wrong, right? MySpace was, in some sense, like an interesting play because it was a really hot, fast-growing social network. And he was not wrong that social networking was going to become big. But what happened was, of course, Facebook 
ate their lunch. And so it was maybe the wrong social network to bet on. But, you know, he kind of had a 50-50 shot there because MySpace and Facebook were the two top ones. So he at least directionally grabbed, you know, (laughs) in the right direction, even if he sort of picked the wrong one. Julia Angwin has a quote from Rupert Murdoch in her book forecasting that MySpace was on track to be the biggest mass platform for advertising in the world. Well, you know, it's funny about Murdoch's quote, right? Like, he's just describing Facebook, right? (laughs) They're the biggest single mass platform for advertising in the world. So he wasn't wrong that there was potential there. It's just that in the end, I think the engineering, the lack of engineering expertise and talent and the lack of focus on and abilities to outcompete on actual quality of the product is what doomed MySpace to fail against Facebook. And so even though I say that this marketing genius and hucksterism is important, you still have to have that underpinning of the great engineering and the great talent. And that was the thing that that ultimately undid them was that they didn't have that. This unraveling happened very soon after Julia's book was released in 2009. By the time I finished reporting the book, I pretty much knew they were not going to succeed. And it was actually mostly because of the News Corp acquisition. There was so much turmoil and almost all mergers fail. Like that's just a rule of merger life. And then it is also true that News Corp didn't know how to compete, right? Because the thing is, this is this giant media company and they have this hot property, but it's locked in this battle with Facebook. And this is something that requires strategic thinking. Like, should we clean up the nightclub or should we just double down on that and compete with Facebook on that? MySpace had neither the edge of a New York City digital media startup, nor the loose libertarian spirit of Silicon Valley. The social network felt chaotic and open in a free-for-all sense, much like the city where it was founded, Los Angeles. They made the internet, which up until then had been kind of like a nerdy space, feel like a nightclub, like a feel like a cool place and also slightly dangerous. MySpace felt cool because however massive it was, it was still youth-oriented. And with various scenes and clicks, it felt very niche. Plus, Internet culture was not yet mainstream. Here is Taylor Lorenz again. MySpace was notable and it was big, but it wasn't TikTok size, right? Like it was still relatively small and the internet was so much smaller that I think, you know, people that were big on the platform couldn't really scale out and achieve like mass fame because MySpace culture was not, like the internet culture was not mass culture in the 2000s. And so it just, they were sort of inherently niche. And all of this was happening before there was viral content, before algorithms filtered what internet users would see. I think that now with algorithms, it just, we, we take a lot for granted. Modern internet users that are younger that never had to operate on sites like MySpace just sort of expect the most engaging content to be delivered to them. And it's just something that, you know, was not the case back in the day. Like you had to kind of really hunt around for different things. There wasn't like a for you page that you would consume content on MySpace through. So you kind of had to find it. 
It was the start of something new. Through MySpace, we can see how the modern internet came into being. More to come in our series. Main Accounts, the story of MySpace. This season on Main Accounts, the story of MySpace. It almost seemed like an extended party, like an extended digital party. And these investors in Silicon Valley said, Black people and the internet? Back then, it was like your place to be weird. It was like your place to like show the like freaky or like alt side of yourself. It, it hit me. I was probably like, like 15. I was like, oh my God, you guys are super racist. The MySpace data loss is something that I always put in air quotes. I have no faith that this was done accidentally. Rupert Murdoch lost lots and lots of money on MySpace because it turned out it was actually not a good business. Main Accounts, The Story of MySpace is written and hosted by me, Joanne McNeil. Editing and sound design by Mike Coscarelli and Mary Dew. Original music by Elise McCoy. Mixing and mastering by Josh Fisher. Research and fact-checking by Austin Thompson, Jocelyn Sears, and Marissa Brown. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Special thanks to Ryan Murdoch, Grace Fuse, and Bahid Frazier. Our associate producer is Lauren Phillip. Our senior producer is Mike Coscarelli. And our executive producer is Jason English. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Sadly, my MySpace page is no longer around. But you can find me on Twitter at Joe Mick. Let us hear your MySpace story. And check out my book, Lurking. Main accounts, the story of MySpace is a production of iHeart Podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.